This is the third Rory O'Connor podcast, published on the 27th of October, 2017. An interview with Guido Preparata about the dollar as the world's reserve currency and about money and monetary reform. Hi, I'm Rory O'Connor and I'm talking to Guido Preparata about two broad topics. How the United States maintains its central role in the global economy through the power of the dollar as the world's reserve currency and about Guido's fresh, unfamiliar take on money as we have it today, how money might be reformed, and its effect on economic production. Guido Preparata is an economist by training, with a PhD in political economy from UCLA. In the 1990s, he worked at the Italian Central Bank, the Bank of Italy. From 2000 to 2008, he taught political economy at the University of Washington, and during that time wrote two books, Conjuring Hitler and the ideology of tyranny. Since 2012, he's been senior lecturer in social sciences at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, and most recently was the editor of and a substantial contributor to the book New Directions for Catholic Social and Political Research, published in 2016. So, good to talk to you, Guido. Likewise, good to be here. Good stuff. So actually, in that book, New Directions for Catholic Social and Political Research, you published an essay called The Political Economy of Hypermodernity, written with a co-author, Domenico D'Amico, am I right? D'Amico, yes. It's in that book, and you'd be able to get it through your website, through getting in touch with you. Uh, yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, the link is to the editor's, uh, editor's uh, website, but if you know whoever writes me, I'll, I'll send it. Uh, to him or her, uh, no problem. Just, uh, yeah. So that essay uses the U.S. balance of payments as a way of analyzing the centrality of the dollar and of the United States to the world economy. Uh, so, uh, first of all, just tell us what the balance of payments is. Well, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, the balance of, the balance of payments is just the sum of two uh, prospectuses. One is the balance of trade; it's uh, merchandise, how much you buy and how much you sell. To the rest of the world, and the other one is is your capital account. How much money you uh, send away? In other in other words, how much money you export, which means to say how much money you invest abroad and how much money comes in to invest at in in your in your country. And um, so there was a body of literature forty years ago which showed that the way the the U.S. exercised control was basically by Printing a lot of dollars and then uh, sending, uh, sending them out into the world to buy property abroad and to build military bases at the foreigner's expense. The idea being with those dollars, once they kept them, uh, they would return on the American market and buy things with them. Uh, that worked uh, beautifully after World War II because there was a so-called dollar gap. The defeated countries were were reconstructing, and so those dollars were useful because they would could refurb, refurbish themselves and and resupply on the American market. But early on, uh, early on, um, early 60s, the the vanquished countries rebuilt very fast, and all those dollars that they were just flush with uh, that had been arrived through all the investments and the and and just the military bases, and and the presence of the U.S. Uh, over on its and various nodes of its empire were not as needed as much. And so what began to happen uh, from the 60s to the 70s is that the vassal countries uh, 
were not buying merch, U.S. merchandise anymore. And all of this was shown by a negative balance of payments. And just the sum of the merchandise balance and the capital balance showed that the U.S. were in deficit because they were just sending too much greenbacks to buy whatever they want, wanted. And the vassals who received the money weren't using them to buy back as much as they wanted. And so there was just a quantum of money that was just extra paper there that nobody wanted. And so the way the way the system was set up um, was that the vassals had the opportunity once they satisfied themselves on the merchandise market to say, well, whatever, I don't want to buy. I mean, I bought your fridges, I bought your car, I bought your cars and I bought your grain, but I have all these extra, these extra bags of dollars and I put it here into very prosaic terms that I don't know what to do. And since we are on a gold standard, you know what? I am going to redeem them in gold. <laughs> and, and that struck the, you know, panic in the system because they, you know, they understood if they kept going this way, um, the whole system would, I wouldn't say collapse, but let's say the engine would break. And, and it did, uh, sort of. Yeah, at a certain point. Yeah. So in the 60s, for example, there were various kind of uh, stopgap measures which the U.S. used to offset the danger of uh dollar deflation yes that yeah that makes up the uh, political international political e economic history of the of the cold war and the uh, the beauty of the essays is that in 20 pages with a bunch of graphs we explain what i think everything in other words i and and i've submitted this article to a variety of famous economists and i've yet to hear from them whether we got it right or completely wrong because if we got it completely right i mean this article is huge for a variety, a variety of reasons. One is because there, you know, generally there are a million books out there that are very technical, which is to say that they are, they, those who written do not understand and hide behind technicisms, the, the simple realities of power. And vast majority of these books do not explain to you what is happening. And 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 third or, or second, whatever it was, the, is that the measure of the balance of payments was suppressed in 1975. Um, and so that statistic, which is crucial, I mean, it's not just, well, you know, it's just, it's, it's a statistic, which is interesting. No, it's, it's vital for understanding, uh, international economic and, and power dynamics has been suppressed. So now they teach you, they teach you in school, you know, and if, you know, whoever's gone and it was taken macroeconomics, you know, whoever's had the misfortune of going through an economics degree and I have, you know, and after and all of us, you know, that, you know, your brain is just like they're beaten to a pulp and, and you know less about economics at the end of the degree that you did when you first started. And they tell you, well, everything balances, you know, everything balances, you know, it's like uh, you, you if, if, if you if, if you buy if you if you buy more if you buy more groceries than you than you export them, then you just settle your account with just securities. And it's all one big zero. And it makes no sense, because then if you look at the statistics, uh, traditional you know, statistics uh, through the, uh, the the surveys of current business and all the international statistics of the United States, that balance of payments, not only was it published, not only was it a huge headache, you know, the, the famous cases of the Kennedy administration that were trying, all those stopgap measures you're referring to, just was, it was, I, I think, I, I, uh, for the Kennedy administration, they mentioned that there were the two key problems. One, I don't forget what it was. Where... I'll just uh, interrupt you to ask, um, how were you able to derive that key statistic, the U.S. balance of payments, which was uh, suppressed in 1975? 
Well, exactly. This is the uh, this is the, the work that I and my co-author have spent uh, nearly a year uh, crunching numbers. It was I remember it was it was it was absolutely painful to go through those things. And we we took the statistics and we we reconstruct we estimated it because you have to extricate it from the data that all they're they're all condensed. And we just assumed. So th- what we did was this. So before, so when you had when the you know what happens is that all these uh, all these these people who supplied the United States with all the things they wanted and received dollars in exchange would send their dollars to the central banks. The central banks would find themselves, as I was saying, awash. There would be a wash in these dollars, and so. Uh, uh, up until the moment that the gold standard worked, what what they did was basically was basically redeem them in gold and get some and what not to rock the boat too much. The rest would be quote unquote invested in treasury bills. It wasn't invested; it was parked. In other words, it's like the United States saying, "You know what? Uh, keep them." Uh, what we can do is that instead of just being liquid, we're going to give you a little interest, you know, one, two point one, two percent on Treasury bills and be happy with that. And so since they were the boss, everybody shut up and said, OK, but, you know, some of some of the more pickly and, and prickly vassals like the French were saying, well, this is an exorbitant privilege. We don't know what to do with these dollars and give us the gold. And they pushed and pushed and pushed. And by the end of the system, this was under Nixon. They just realized that okay, we're gonna do it. we're gonna do something that's gonna look on the outside as a major defeat and as a major horror and dishonor for the United States. And it turns out to be it was it was a it was a stroke of genius. Just to clarify, Guido, uh, before we get to that, and by the way, um, I second what you say about the clarity of the essay. Uh, anybody is aware can read it and understand it. What was the incentive for the what you call the vassal states to? to take these T-bills? Well, yes, good question. Why would they go along with it? Because for them to have access to the big, I call it the big eBay US market was vital. I mean, that's where they made a lot of, that's where they made their profits and where, that's where the vassals had their fiefdom, so to speak, was just by having access to the US, to the US market, which was the largest in the world. And the US, it is notorious, doesn't even need to trade that much. If you look at the figures of what commercial, what international trade is for the US, it's, it's not much. It's always been far less than 10 percent of its GDP. It's something it does to to keep the allies close to its chest. You know, you're like it's like, do you want to sell? Do you want to be in the game? And everybody goes, oh, yes, I do. Well, then, you know, just all right, you you're 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 welcome here. Sell. But in the meantime, we'll, we'll play our game, which is a lot of flooding you with dollars. And whatever you don't want with those dollars, you're going to park them in treasury bills. So that's that's the strategy. Once you see it in these terms in this with this sequence, then you understand what has been happening. And so they do this and then and the system eventually breaks because they don't have enough gold to back up all these extra dollars. And the system the system ends. It's not that it really collapses. It ends in 1971 and Nixon pulls the plug and he does it with his team and he does it brilliantly. I think Nixon was one of the most interesting figures of the of the of the 20th century, one of the most important cold warriors and, and emperors that the United States has had. Very controversial figure, very little, very little understood, um, uh, very sinister at the same time. But I'm not here to, to pass uh, these kinds of judgments are more interested in understanding the dynamics of power in any way. So Nixon, Nixon, what they do is that they suspend gold payments. 
And, and at the time, and when this happens in August of 71, everybody goes, oh, what a dishonor. You know, the U.S. has just shown its weakness. It was anything but that. In, the, in a way, it was saying they, they, they just shifted gears and now there was no longer any gold. So they even reinforced their position, says they kept printing a lot of dollars, but now there was nowhere else to go but treasury bills. All these things have been pretty well understood. Uh, a number of economists have worked and explained these things. One of them is Michael Hudson, whose work we used as a foundation for ours. But then we were surprised, and I was surprised that nobody, ever since these important works of the 70s, attempted to just connect the dots and bring and, 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 and try to explain what has happened ever since. And the big change that's happened in the 19, under Reagan, in the early 80s, they, they changed the game, they, re, they redesigned the engine. And instead of trying to place those dollars with the, with the, with the merchandise that was no longer competitive, the US is no longer, was, has lost its competitive edge a long time ago. And uh, what they did instead is that they, uh, they decided that they were going to um, cover the gap by selling securities instead. And that explains um, this, this huge, huge, uh, the huge advent of uh, finance ever since the days of the yuppies which have dominated the the, the cultural color of of our of our planet in the last 35 years and so it's not true that we've gone back to this gatsby style that society has become like has been financialized and we are in the grips of these financial gurus and 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 it's it's this these have been pondered executive decisions that have been thought out meticulously and whose origins lie in, 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 the, in, in all those headaches of the Kennedy technocrats in the early 60s. This was a change that they had foreseen. You can find it on the presidential reports. And, and it has been carried out 20 years later under the, um, under the uh, tenure of uh, Federal, Governor, uh, Federal Reserve Governor Paul Volcker. And I, I tell the story how they redesigned the engine of this system of imperial taxation, I call it, which is which which mainspring is always the same. And the main change. So the, in the first phase, they print dollars to mostly this is, has, has been shown mostly to forge their military bases. And they have about a thousand you know, thereabouts these days all over the world. But if our numbers are right, uh, it's not just for that. They're printing a lot of money, not just to build bases, but also to uh, subsidize their, corpor their multinational corporations, what's called foreign direct investment, which for us correlates with those numbers. And we think is what they do. And this is, this is the way in which they expand control, not just the bases, but through presence of the corporations. So all of those people that say we are in the, we, you know, this is a world in the hand of corporations of economic power and they are the one who lobby and control everything in my view turn the problem upside down and do not really understand what's happening these are all auxiliary forces of the first degree that are have been hired and and commissioned to carry out a very important strategic work just to just to emphasize uh, maybe one last time those statistics uh, what you're saying is the printed dollars, the out of nowhere dollars, as it were, add up to uh, U.S. military spending and foreign direct investment, which is obviously relevant to Ireland combined. Uh, it's a tremendous sum, which gives the United States a very clear uh, strategic role in the world. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we, we've been here for the past, you know, 10, 15 years, all these articles where everybody laments the level of indebtedness of the United States. And yet, you know, they keep going and it piles up and it piles up and continuously and and everything's fine. And so you had these naysayers and prophets of doom every year. Now, again, it has happened. They're predicting another major crisis, uh, a hiking up, a hiking up of the interest rates and so on and so forth. Possibly so, but if you look at it in the long run over the past half century, it's been extraordinary. This machine that they have uh, erected, and you know, uh, it has had its breakdowns, but they have been so fast on their feet in putting it back together and continuing to exercise power, not just with intelligence, cleverness, swiftness, but with a variety, you know, there, with a dynamism that's just extraordinary. So it's and and so I. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of torn. On the one way, you have all these books that say, well, it's the end of the American empire. We've entered the decline, like the uh, in the area of you know Theodosius, uh, the emperor. They show their might, but they're about to lose it, and so on and so forth. And I have my doubts. I see a tremendous, uh, tremendous inventiveness at work, and I don't know. I may be completely wrong in these forecasts, but in at any rate, um, it's it's admirable the way they have uh, the way they have managed this system of imperial taxation and discursively speaking and hidden it completely from public view from understanding exactly what they're doing although they do understand exactly how to do it you know like this story for instance oh the you know greenspan we don't know what a bubble i mean we know what a bubble is it's very hard to identify it at the right time and pop it at the right time and manage it it's all a pack of lies. It, not only do they know what a bubble is, they engineer the bubble themselves and they know how to... Yeah, this was something I wanted to get into. Uh, you say that just by looking at, say, interest rates and other statistics, that a case can be made that the bubble economy, which has been going on, about the bubbles since the 80s, is managed, timed, inflated and deflated. Uh, just talk more about that. Yeah, completely. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there, I show this with the graphs. I mean, the bubble itself is is just is an attractor, is an attractor of capitals to the mark to the marketplace, which is Wall Street, and they use all this money to cover their deficit, the commercial deficit, but it also is money that they use and covers to a certain extent their own printing of money in playing the old game. And so it's essential. And these bubbles are not some kind of weird, uh, immoral gambling things that are somehow tolerated. No, they are they are tools of imperial policy. Okay, Guido. Um, granted, the use of these bubbles as a as an imperial tool. Um, could we go through after coming off the gold standard? Um, in 1971, there was a there was a, a last attempt to maintain. A kind of mercantile policy by the United States under Carter and then a new policy was introduced under the Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker who was actually originally a Carter appointee but this happened mostly under Reagan so could you just take us through the mechanics of what Volcker did? Yeah well in, in the final phases of the Nixon and Carter and Ford administrations they were trying to play they were trying to revive the, the, the game in the old ways which is what which was that of making themselves competitive or even engaging Europe in, in trade wars and it didn't work it, it, they just couldn't do it they weren't enough they were not competitive enough to close the gap through the this the sale of competitive merchandise so what they decided to do instead was that of turning Wall Street again, which had been languishing for the past 20 years, into a, a powerhouse again, 
And so the idea instead was that of making American securities. They're not, they were not going to sell uh, Chevys and Fords anymore or grain as the main staples. They were going to sell you securities. And that was going to be there. To buy a security, it's a, it's, 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 an, it's, it's a way of importing capital. So you've got to pay interest on the, on the capital that comes in. But it was so well done and they attracted so much that they in, they kept printing their dollars, but with the money that they got in from foreign investors from all over the world, they would cover their commercial deficits. And part of that money was also used in these, what they used themselves, re-exporting, in, re-exporting in themselves into doing what they've always done, building military bases and buying property abroad. And and the reason why they, they did this, uh, the, the reason they managed to be so... Um, so so competitive was that the, their investment in this fashion were uh, were were more more you know because they had to pay interest in the money that was coming in but they too at the same time at the same time were earning money on what they were investing on the other side and it was it was tremendously successful for them because on at the same time this system was accompanied by their own printing of money and the v- variety of these projects and multinationals that were being thus subsidized were being subsidized for free and so the the, the remuneration that they were getting abroad was was high. This was one of the things that was were noticed that how does the U.S. manage of being so much more profitable? It is highly indebted. It has to be a lot of interest in all the money that's coming in. But on its own, on her own investment abroad, she is several points of uh, percentage points higher than what she has to pay to the others. And the reason is, is that she, the United States, kept doing what it was doing before. That is printing a lot of dollars and basically uh, and basically financing all this acquisition of property property for free. Again, same story. The, the underlying dynamics remain the same. All the vassals and all the recipients of these dollars didn't know what to do with them. There's a there's there's an, an ocean out there and they are invested into titles of the public U.S. public debt. And people would say, but that's horrible. That's going to threaten the entire thing. It really doesn't because the yield on T-bills is so low and it's eroded by inflation that it's like a very small, it's just a very small uh, premium that you have to pay in order to keep the system going. So this is what they do. So instead of selling grain, they're selling securities. So they've inverted the game. It look and it, it looks like it's really, and it's true. It's based on a lot of debt, and and uh, and it's true also that for the past ten years we've had no bubble. There, the the U.S. stock market has been kept up artificially, but exclusively with with uh, it appears exclusively and mostly with U.S. made money. And in fact, we've all been wondering this past decade, what are they doing? It is obvious that after the, the let's call it the crash of 08, something is not just perfect with this machine, and because or else they would have reflated another bubble immediately thereafter, and they haven't. So there's been there are some some changes are afoot, and this belongs to kind of second part of our conversation of trying to guess what they're trying to of of, of what they're doing. Yeah, we'll come back to that shortly. After the first Volcker bubble, there was another bubble in the later 80s. Could you say more about how the Federal Reserve um, managed those bubbles, both inflated them and deflated them? Well, in the first one, they raised their interests really high, and uh, which had a variety of objectives. Uh, one of them was to create enough, uh, was to create enough of um, enough of a crunch to break the back of the unions 
and and they're and through the the, the you know the dynamics of inflation and higher salaries kill the inflation that had been piling up in the states and on the other hand they it worked as a lure for for investors when you have really high rates of uh, you know, when they tell you that your portfolio of New York has, you know, an average yield of, I don't know, 10 percent or more, or depending on people will start to salivate and they send they take the money out of their bank wherever they are and they send it to New York. This first bubble, the first one began, if I remember correctly, um, what was it? Uh, early 80s, 80, 82, 83, you know, the, the, the era of yuppieism when, uh, you know, those were old enough to remember those days. That's when, you know, they, they came on strong and, and all of a sudden Wall Street was alive again. And so the yuppies, you know, 81, 82, 83, and it went on and the role of Japan was key in this. There's a whole story of the Plaza Accord and um, also allowing the yen to become super strong so that they would be incentivated to buy securities for cheap in America. So they, they played, you know, they relied on their vassals in a game of strategic role, role playing, which was also very good in my view. Uh, masked, the, re, the real motivations the, the, were masked. Nobody understood what was really happening, but that was why. And eventually the thing ran out of steam. There was a little, we all remember, a little mini crash in 87 and it ran out of steam in the late 80s with the, the leverage buyouts and all the merging, the mergers, uh, mergers and acquisitions of the late 80s. And, um, and so that was the first one. And then after that, uh, it was considered a complete success overall and they engineered another one which was the most famous one which was yes i mean the the most spectacular one on the greenspan and those were the years of irrational exuberance and they were we're talking about 94 to uh 1001 when uh, shortly before the 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 big momentous break in our history, and um, and and that too, however, was it. It, it was it, 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 there, there was some so much momentum that they relaunched another one a year thereafter. By as we now know, the the, the most recent one and most studied one with the subprime by leveraging instead the uh, properties of um, the housing market. Uh, but they were linked. It was linked to the to. So we have had three. He just had its own connotations. You know, the level of the dollar was different in all of them, and we explain why. But overall, there have been three, and the last one went from 02 to 08. And okay, 07, the, the first cracks appeared, but you know, September of 08, it was officially done. And ever since, um, and ever since. We've been waiting to see. I, I, I mistakenly at the time I wrote somewhere I was convinced that they were going to have a new one with the biotech uh, stock. Uh, I was uh, completely wrong. It didn't happen. Saw so they were going to yeah reflate after 08 with something else because I was reading in the Economist about how you know the biotech. Although it was no biotech was actually what they had started where they launched the first one with. But now clean energy. There you go. Clean energy uh, technologies. Uh, I thought they were going to play the game again, but that didn't really happen. So we're in a very strange time when you, as you say, there's a... One transition, one transition, yeah. Yeah, and under Obama, the US, to some extent, pursued an old-fashioned mercantile strategy. Yeah, to a certain extent, but uh, well, I, in Obama, there was more uh, you know, proclamations of, of going back to a more mercantile 
he said that by he said this in 2010 and he said the next term forget how what he said next five to 20 10 of 20 years we should be again a solid manufacturing country with a solid exporting backbone these are these are things that have been that have been pronounced and proclaimed i don't know if they are acting upon them uh, especially now with this new administration where everybody is still well everybody i many of us are still wondering where we're actually going and uh, but 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 yeah, it's um, I, I, I I've from to me, it looks like 10 years of straight stagnation and, and you know, Euro, Europeans can attest to that. And in, uh, and in the U.S., I would say likewise, there are. Yeah, the rich are doing well, but down below, I'm not seeing much motion, to be honest. No, I think for the most part in many essential respects that's pretty clear so uh, guido could you talk about the the reasons for quantitative easing uh, which was the response to the 2008 crash uh, not just in terms of the obvious kinds of terms of like the stagnant economy but um about the problem the econo- the, the economists the central bankers thought they had which was called the liquidity trap the fact that money was being hoarded well, I mean, the story with the with the quantitative easing, easing, it's or the interest rates. The interest rate is pretty. What the interest rate tells you is how much the banking system can extract from the rest of society, in terms of free rents for giving it money, which it produces by state with a state license, which it shouldn't have, because even in in, in American terms, it's not constitutional. But this is how the world is has been organized for millennia. The interest rate, it, it, the vagaries and, and, and the movement of the interest rate tells you, you know, if you see it from the perspective of the banker, how much money can I suck from the rest of the economy without bleeding it white? This is the calculation they make. So when you see interests going up, generally, not always, but in the stories of the bubbles we've been telling, I, that's a phenomenon that's been called the phenomenon of the whole, of the os, using a French word of you know of, of of soaring, which just tells you that when when the boom is going, you're going to increment the rents you're going to demand, the the interest you're going to demand because you're going to want to participate in this bonanza and suck from the system as much as you can. When the system is debilitated and anemic, if you're going to charge ten percent, you're going to kill. You're gonna kill the, the 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 you know the goose that lays the golden. You're gonna you don't want to kill the you know because you're parasites, and this is what the money system, the the, the banking traditional industry is to a large extent. It, it it has a variety of vital functions. I'm not calling for the abolition of banks, but the lending at interest and the the injection of money as it is is purely parasitical. It's it's a free income, and and it's not in their interest to kill to kill the the the, the body economic. So what do low low interests mean? They simply mean that at this time, the the economy is so weak that we uh, are not going to extract much therefrom, nor, this is the important part, are we going, are we betting on it? Because banking and the political power that, that works with it has the power of life and death over all of us, economically speaking. They decide when to invest, in other words, they decide when to lend the money or not. And apparently in all these years, they have reckoned that the situation is not promising enough to inject any money in large quantity to have another boom, however, and whichever boom you want to have. 
That is the reason. All the story of the quantitative easing was just a way of refurbishing all those banks that had been rocked and destabilized by all the that gambling games they were making by reselling these securities that ended up having no value whatsoever. What has happened is that they... It was a merely... It was a slight correction. That's all. Well, yes, but it, it was interesting. They pumped all these gazillions of dollars, but none of us saw any of it, which goes to show that there are these channels and, and that the hydraulics of the system are peculiar. The key is not to have that money going to the general markets, the markets that we have, but it, their way of refurbishing all the, the, the main nodes of the system by putting the money that had been lost and reorganizing it. And in these reorganizations, there are a variety of cannibalizations like, you know, the Lehman Brothers was eaten up by some other uh, some other entities. But to us, it doesn't make any difference. You know, you can do the financial history and see, you know, once upon a time, there were big, powerful powerhouses such as Merrill Lynch and a lot of these ones and playing this very important game have, you know, have, have succumbed but the system reorganizes itself. And so, but the, the key thing to understand is that we've been speaking of crisis, we've been speaking of crisis and of breakdowns, but there hasn't, there's been no breakdown whatsoever or bailouts. It's not even technically, yeah, bailouts, you know, they have, the central bank can create as much money as it sees fit. The problem is just it has to be careful that that the money that it injects is not completely out of range with the estimation of the wealth that it controls. And so it issues money vis-a-vis -vis what I think it's worth, vis-a-vis of, of, -vis of the wealth that it has just appraised. So in that event, they saw that the U.S. is still a very rich country, that this completely destabilizing flow of the subprimes had just, you know, the, bub the bubble had just popped. And so, and so they redistributed they re some of the some of the resources. A lot of money had been created and burnt, you know, and, and eclipsed by itself. So that's just that's just a, that's a wash. So it's okay. And whatever else had to be refueled and refilled, they did, and it was done. And and it, but you know, it left. It wasn't that done, and nobody saw anything. To a large extent, it was just like that. The system went on, and we barely saw cracks. What we saw, on the other hand was that the the, uh, the the national debt shot up. It went to 100% because all the money was created goes to the public debt. And, and another effect of that was, you know, FATCA that, uh, that passed a very important act of, you know, going after um, rich Americans who exported and evaded, exported their money abroad and put it into, uh, you know, places like Switzerland and tax havens of that kind. And so that told you and this is what probably linked to what's happening now, that they are not 100% pleased with everything, with the machine that they had. And even though they fixed it pretty well, um, there are a few things that they're trying to fix and correct. And I think that all this late talk of digital currencies and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is very much linked to this. And this is like, you know, very interesting development. Yeah, uh, how does that uh, play in, as it were? The digital currencies? Yeah. I think... I think, I think that they want to, well, there's been a book written by, you know, a, a, a high level economist, it's, it's Ken Rogoff, called The Curse of Cash. I think it's just last year's and where, you know, and when people like this is a former, is uh, a Harvard professor and a former, former Federal Reserve um, employee. And he wrote uh, This Time is Different by Carmen Reinhardt, I believe. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I don't I, I I didn't read. Yeah, I didn't read. Oh, this time is different. Yes. Oh, yeah. About all yeah. The, oh, the history of all the different booms. Yeah, that was. Yeah, this one came after that one, I think. 
And, um, and yeah, and when, and when it's not that he says that he's, he's, he's a spokesperson and, and he's, he's conveying that the establishment is going a certain direction. And so it's, it's a serious thing if they tell you, and, and there's been, and they're experimenting in India, um, trying to go to a cashless society. And that's really interesting. And now they're demonizing cash and all of a sudden, you know, you, you know, all of us, all those of us who studied economics, remember that you go through an entire course of economics and you virtually never hear about money, which is extraordinary, which is unbelievable. That's the case. Now things have changed. Now all of a sudden they're all very interested about money. They all write these books and they've all become monetary historians. And it's always, and you read always the same book. They start with Mesopotamia and this, you know, it's very erudite and it's the same, same little, you know, little gospel that you hear somebody, you know, they, now they cite the sociologists of money. All of a sudden there's, there's been this recrudescent or I mean, this this flurry, they're all become experts. Um, the reason why, uh shockingly surprisingly to most most people who haven't done an economics degree uh like myself like most people is because no good for, yeah good for you 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 understand more than economists do i assure you <laughs> um the, the reason why um is because the economic theory they're working on is that uh the economy is based on something not far from barter or exchange am i understand that understanding that correctly maybe not yeah yeah it's just they said well you don't have to worry about money money is just a veil you know it's it's the underlying maximizing uh, dynamics that explain everything so don't concern yourself with history or inst- institutional change it's all about mechanics and utility and, and and greed and move everything and the rest are just you know as they say veils when you say veil you mean a, a means of exchange Simply, that's all. Yeah, a, a neutral, a neutral factor. You know, it's uh, the exchange is is, is 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 decided by people's preferences, and then you know, just pick a commodity and make that your exchange means, and everything flows. And yeah, a delirium, and and it's but all that now it's changed. Now, not only have all become monetary experts, people who haven't spent. People are now in their 60s and 70s and have never dealt with it. They all, they all, they've all done their mathemi- mathematized nonsense for uh, the entire careers. And, and now, they've, now they've all become very sensitive sociologists of, uh, and historians of money. And, um, and, 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 and it's, it, the beauty of all this, not only is, is, is this, but they've also, they're also critical of paper money. And now you hear these tirades against, you know, about how money is inflationary and about how the despots and the tyrants and princes have used money and they're debased the coin and then, then they, uh, they use the printing presses to uh, screw over the people. And so, and, and, you know, they, they, this, this, this kind this kind this, they, they engage into these tirades that they sound almost, you know, populistic. It's. Could you name some names here, Guido? The vast ma- of, of the economists that are doing this. All of them, all of the top establishment economists are doing this. One who started earlier, but who notoriously, you know, was told not to get into money, but now is improvised as the new Keynes, as Krugman, of course. But all of them, all of them, and uh, and and, you, and and Rogoff is just the latest example. And and so now they attack money. Uh, a lot of oh yeah, international monetary funds. Uh, they're economists. There's several of them. Uh, are, are doing this and well these views do not represent the IMF and yet 
the logo of the IMF is on their paper. This is huge. Something something weird is happening. It's as if all of a sudden, you know, uh, these these uh, satanic priests are start, are start to say that God and Jesus are great. I mean, I, I'm just being I'm I'm, I'm just being like hyperbolic here, but it's exactly what it is. It's weird. And uh, and so you think, well, I mean, this is, you know, uh, this is not this is not what you've been preaching for so long. And so now they are saying that money, uh, paper money is bad and so on and so forth. And uh, and as part of this uh, hubbub about uh, money um, in the past while, there have been arguments about negative interest rates and lack of spending. Um, could you say something about that? That's yeah, we come to the point. Negative interest is a really weird thing. Now, we know what positive interest is. It's like, you want my money? Good. You're going to pay an X percent if you want it. And, and you know, you always ask, why is that really happening? You know, and you say, well, it's normal. If you want my money, you got to pay a price for it. And thinking, well, why should I want to, why should I have to pay you? You don't need the money. Just lend it to me at zero interest. Oh, hell no. I mean, uh, my, 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 my thriftiness has to be rewarded. And they come up with all these arguments completely unconvincing until you find the answer in a number of you know, important works, such as I have eventually. And the reason why you have to pay interest is because money is being treated as something that never perishes, because that's traditionally what gold, you know, the, the commodity they pick for the exchange, and they should never have done that. But they did because in times of war, it was... It, it... I'm just going to draw you back to these uh, arguments about negative interest rates, and we'll come to gold later. These mainstream arguments, they've generally been about negative rates in the sense of being lower than inflation. Tell us about the economists who've been talking about this. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the thing is right now that, you know, you have so-called, uh, you know, the interest rates, as we said, as we said before, are low. They're low because the system is anemic. And at the, at the same time, however, inflation always creeps up. Why is that? Because money is, is injected in the system through loans. And it's the only way it's not freely created. I mean, it's freely created by those who created, it, but it's sold at a price. And so you cannot but have inflation. And why is that? Because if I put 100, 100 bucks in the economy and expect to be paid 110, no matter what, rain or shine, in a, a year from now, I don't care if you cannot pay. It, you know, I'm the one who puts the, the 100 in the economy. And the question is, where are you going to get your 10 of interest to pay me back if 10% is the interest? And the only answer in a closed system is me again, the banker. And in order to give you that 10, I'm going to issue you a new loan for the second year for 110 this time with interest on it as well. And so you see that there's no way out of it that, you know, prices have to go up, even if the system produces very little or nothing, because the mathematics of the of compound interest do just this. So it happens that interests are low, but the prices are going up, in inflation is going up, and we've reached a situation of what we call what the, the real interest. The real interest is the interest that is quoted minus the, the, the level of inflation. And in a situation of anemia, this is what happens. So, the, you know, the inflation is eroding your interest. So you're 5%, but inflation is 3%. So your actual, your real interest rate is 2 and so on and so forth. But if inflation grows faster and you're not producing very much at all, you go into this region, which is called negative interest. And people say, well, what is negative interest? I mean, I understand it logically, but economically, what does that mean? Well, it's very interesting because the reformer that I follow, the one who understood these things and is the German who wrote about 100 years ago, his name was Gisele, said, and even Gisele, you know, I remember. Silvio Gisele. Yeah, I remember when I was, I was one of the, you know, one of the 
very few academics who published extensively on Gazelle. And I cannot tell you how hard it was to do this because generally reviewers would laugh at you. They would tell you, oh yeah, Gazelle, you know, he's a Nazi or whatever. It has absolutely nothing to do with Nazi. But they were trying to discredit you in any, any, in any way. And now... To be in, clear, he was a businessman from the late 19th century and early 20th century. Yeah, it was it was who sold the dental implements and machines made money and came back to his to his homeland and wanted to do some uh, economic reform and uh, published pamphlets in the years of the war it had great success and but then it went nowhere and then his name somehow the first world war world war one and somehow his name survived because Keynes received one of these pamphlets realized the genius behind it and tried to steal it and plagiarize as was his his, his way of doing things and modified in his own way not to get in trouble with it and that's a it's an interesting in convoluted story in the history of economic thought which i've also told in other in, in, in another piece regardless but the thing that's extraordinary is that now you hear people like rogoff advocating gazelle which is you know it, it's 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 crazy and you ask yourself well, what is going on and so we are in a situation where de facto, and here, and here, well, this, this is what we're, we're dealing with now. So in, in negative interest rate is weird because it's basically, it's as if, it's as if you know they're giving you money for free, you know, almost. I mean, generally you have to pay interest, and now you don't have to pay interest. Well, it's it's not exactly like that. What Gazelle was saying is that technically money should perish you know if everything we exchange has as a life cycle some things perish more than others but everything you know we should have an average depreciation rate and the way to keep actually i'll just interrupt you there uh, because i found when i've been explaining these ideas as i've been reading them to people that they haven't many of them haven't found this and a kind of intuitive an idea that is intuitive to them, the idea of things in the economy being perishable. So could you just expand on that? Well, it might seem self-evident, but there you go. Yeah, no, no, it's not at all. I mean, it, it is if you think about it, it really is. But we've been in, it's been ingrained in us to think that money is has to earn interest, you know, by a God given right. But it's it's not. It's, it's... I think one way of approaching it is that even goods in the economy are perishable. People have had trouble with that even. Everything is perishable. Everything, uh, of course, uh, butter, lettuce, butter, butter, lettuce, butter lettuce lasts, you know, a few days. So the rate of depreciation is, 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 is you know, is, is like enormous. Um, a house depreciates, I don't know, 2% a year. And so Gazelle says, why is it that we are exchanging goods that have a lifespan with something, first of all, which should be purely symbolic, right? It should have the least physical amount of properties, which is money. And yet we don't. It not only it's it's money is a commodity, unfortunately. And it's it, and it's treated as a, it's because of it's the heritage of gold. And it's it unlike the goods it accompanies, it the gold is imperishable because that's the strength of the gold. It's imperishable and it's and it's divisible. You can cut it into small parcels and so on and so forth. And that's institutionally, that's you know, that's where the 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 the, the mother of all sins has been committed, economically speaking. So there's a mismatch. Complete. 
it should have never happened. The reason why they took gold is that because, you know, because we are, human beings are for the most part barbarians and they still are. And so in a state of constant, of constant tension and war, you could congeal your wealth by an understanding with everybody, everybody else that that was the way to do it and bury it in, in the backyard. I, I was waiting for the, you know, you wait for the, for, the, for the storm to come. And once the storm has passed, you unearth it and could start trading again. But this is if you think in constant terms of war, but economically speaking in a, in a, in a general beautiful state of peace and exchange, Money is purely a symbol. And this and all these changes are we have them. The system understands it because when you you know you can you know in the world these days you pay you with a debit card. You don't need money anymore. It, the money is just you know magnetic impulses traveling on a network. The problem is that the network, the bankers, this is they understand all this. The bankers don't want the gold. The bankers started traditionally by hoarding the gold and selling it to you, but it's cumbersome. They understand that very well. They want to keep the privilege of a gold commodity-based type of money and take its power, so to speak, its strength, and suffuse it to whatever they sell, which is their banknotes, checks, which are the basis for bills. You know. Uh, but now the bills are and to bring it back to the macroeconomic situation part of that was what was fueling the move in the 70s from the gold standard to the current dollar standard as it were well but that yes but that wasn't a big game because people don't have gold anymore they went back to that system because it had some kind of archetypical perfection in their eyes but it, it eventually the way they used it with their as the game we explained it before, they ended up using it too fast and wearing it out. People don't deal with gold. Nobody wants to deal with gold, but to, but to, but to possess the power to sell money as a commodity that never perishes, which bankers still do to this day, what they sell you is access to their network, which is a very powerful, extensive network, which they have erected through years and years of business transactions and business networking and connections, you know, which it's a huge thing they're selling to you. So you pay a price to be part of the banking system because it's something, it's, it's an enormous thing. It's a circuit they've created over several hundreds of years of, you know, of, of great, of, of intense labor. And, um, and the fact that they're selling, that they're managing magnetic impulses as if it were gold. It's, it's a mind bender, but this is exactly how it is. As though it were limited and as though it didn't have any relation to goods. Exactly. But that's exactly the story of Bitcoin. This is why Bitcoin they allow, because it's based on the same principle of scarcity. You can only make so much. You can only mine so much. The system and the routine will tell you the, the algorithm or the protocol they have, whatever you want to call them, will tell you that you can only bring a maximum amount of million of, of Bitcoin. So it becomes a speculative uh, staple. Uh, that functions also as a means of payment. Which is why its value has increased astronomically. And, and fluctuated as well. And this is why it's tolerated by the system because it is completely in keeping with this vision that everything has to be scarce. The rest of us believe that this can, this is just, this is the mother of all injustices. If you limit the, the amount of money, you are constricting life. And, you know, and, and this is, this is, this is the key of all battles. Uh, in a sense, and, and where we want to raise the awareness that, you know, we could actually start changing this peacefully 
but that there is a system out there that it's going to resist very strongly. And the reason why they want to get rid of cash, to go back to our discussion now, because we'd say this system is basically omnipotent. It does what it does, however it does. It has created concentrations of powers that have, of the, the distribution of wealth that have been unseen, unprecedented now. We know this. Uh, the world, the, the middle class has been destroyed, basically, which is the biggest, the biggest challenge to oligarchic tenure is the middle class. It's not the revolting masses. And this, this goes into another big sociology of power, which we will discuss maybe at some other point. Definitely we should, but getting back to the consideration of Silvio Gazelle among uh, academic economists and central bankers. So anyway, yeah, so the reason, so what I was saying is that um, it's weird, you know, that the system which is already extraordinarily powerful, uh, it, it has, it, it has, as I said, reached a point of, it, it does what it wants to do. And the vast majority of us either don't understand or are really struggling hard to try to figure out what it does. And sometimes you understand, most of the time you don't. Sometimes you understand impressionistically. This is how I put, I put myself in this category. I, I kind of get it, a few things, but I'm always, I feel that I'm always panting and trying to stay behind and keep up with the changes. And, and so now you read these books, read by these high priests, that all of a sudden invoke the name of Gazelle, who is traditionally celebrated by the anarchists. And now he is in the big books of the big guys, which is extraordinary. And you know, experiments are done in India to get rid of cash, which is interesting because you know, generally the peasantry in India has been the most attached to its gold, despite of all, because they, they still, you know, they hoard it. That's the whole Gazelle thing. The more you hoard, <laughs> the more you hoard, the less the economy works and money, and, and Gazelle is very simple to understand. He said, the money that's printed corresponds to a bunch of goods out there that are on the shelves. If you put your money under the mattress, you know, because they tell you that the money keeps, it's crazy, but that's exactly what happens. But what's the, the sure thing in the real realm is that those goods on the shelves, they're gonna go bad and people are not gonna work if those who hoard the money are just hoarding it. And so they look upon you and says, you little saver, you little beast. So take your money away from your mattress. But it's, some of us do that, but most of those who hoard are those who maneuver and have the levers to the system themselves. That's what, it's not the little savers that are screwing it up. So now they're just saying, we want to get rid of cash. And so I would, some of my friends were looking at each other and say, this is funny. You know, now all of a sudden, you know, they have everything. They control everything, but now they, they don't want cash anymore. Why is that? And the reason why you've been, there have been a bunch of articles that have been sporadically but regularly appearing in the literature of the cent, of central banking that invoke Gazelle, which is, as I said, it's, it's, it's like, it, it's opposites. You, it's, it's invoking your arch enemy, which you know, think, why are they invoking Gazelle? Because Gazelle was just saying, you know, the problem with, with, with deflation and crisis and unemployment and so on and so forth, it's because the banks are not landing, period. And they're not landing because they have this enormous power, one, of creating money, and two, of disposing of this means of payment, which never dies. So they are in, they have the ability to use Gazelle's expression to embarrass the rest of us. Because the rest of us, the, the rest of us are producing goods. You know, if you're an agri, if you're an agriculturalist, yeah, you got tomatoes, you're not gonna survive the harvest if you don't get any money to bring them to the market. But the rest of us are, in one form or another, all providing, even those who provide services, we all provide things that are marked and characterized by a varying degree of dyingness. 
to invent a word, a perishability. And so, and, and, and there is another manufacturer out there. So even the Marxian perspective is wrong. It's not, you know, it's employer versus worker. No, because even amongst the employers, not all of them are equal because those who possess the powers to make manufacture the money are the most powerful of all. They are those who've been, this, 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 this license have been farmed out to them to do this and they can wait, they can wait forever because they have this power of blackmail over the rest of us. Now, again, why do they want to get rid of the paper? It so happens, nevertheless, that in spite of all these injustices and this profound injustice of the way money is managed, nevertheless, the issuance, the issuance of this faceless cash in the economist, just like gold or silver for the Indian peasantry, represents uh, some kind of a little patrimony that people hang on to and, and, and with which they manage things under the table right? Uh, or in the block. That's for the little ones. But I surmise that a lot of this cash that has been put into circulation, if you, if you read the book of Rogoff, he says, well, you know, it's all in the hands of drug dealers and of the evil Putin. It's all, you know, it's the Russians and the drug lords. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, whatever. The real problem here is, if, especially if you look at the FATCA, that piece of, that piece of um, legislation that goes after Americans exporting their money abroad, I think the problem is that they... What's it called? Sorry, I'm not sure I've heard of it. Yeah, F-A-T-C-A. Uh, All right, a play on fat cut or whatever, yeah. Yeah, it's that movement with which they spearheaded, uh, you know, the the, the, the the end of the uh, banking secret by, by making Switzerland reveal the... And then they all fell like dominoes. If, if Once Switzerland fell, they all did. To reveal the, uh, the the patrimonies of American citizens who had uh, money abroad, and I, I surmise that they, you know, it's so a gazelle. What did gazelle say? To make a long story short, it's pretty simple, and, and you know it. You know the story. Gazelle said, you know what? You know, let's make you know the solution to revolutionize and make it like great and best for everybody is just make money mimic the life of the goods it accompanies. Make money die. Put stamp on it a date, an expiration date. I think this was was one of the most, for me, revolutionary and genial things that I've and, and genius things that I ever read. I mean, it's 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 an extraordinary idea, and and uh, I mean, I wish I'd come up with it, but I, I didn't, and somebody else did, and it's, which is great, and so it should be everybody's patrimony. And now the beauty is that you hear these high-level high priest bankers saying, "Let's follow Gazelle." Which is, and then you ask yourself, man, how can that be? Here we are, you know, trying to organize people to grassroots and create little businesses in order to overcome the crisis by having regional currencies with an expiration date, which is in a sense the most, you know, you could say most vocal, uh, civil disobedient form of protest there is for relaunching the welfare of communities. And at the other end of the spectrum, you got the oligarchs that are saying, yeah, Gazelle is great. And you think, oh my God, you know, what is happening? And the reason why they're doing this, and, and this has been, and you find this peppered in all these other central bank papers that have appeared beforehand, they always say, you know, we should find ways of, you know, issuing cash with like, we should, with the lottery system that certain banknotes that end up in even or odd numbers may not be used on certain days. And you ask yourself, what are they trying to do? And what they're trying to do, and the only explanation that I have is that there's a lot of cash which has been issued by the Federal Reserve that Americans are keeping rich Americans, very rich, the ones who have been actually most benefited by the system are keeping away from the system. 
and the system needs it back to relaunch its bubbles and fuels its bubbles. And and disease, apparently these streams of cash have been enormous, as related in Rogoff's book. So much so that they they you know it's like leakages that are unbearably big, and they can only have been handled by big players, not the little ones. And my surmise is that they want to do away with them so they can control every single angle of this game and nobody will have any kind of piece of cash to hide in the house or with which to keep some little business on the sly and not pay taxes on it as, if you wish, some kind of insubordinate desire of asserting independence from a fisc and from a a taxation system that might be perceived as too heavy. And, 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 and this and all this talk of digital currencies is precisely with that. All these techniques they've developed will allow you to see where every cent is. And tax evasion will therefore will be impossible. And the story that all of this is done to block the drug dealers and the evil Russians is not going to fly because I'm sure that the drugs will still circulate in the dark web through some other kind of cryptocurrency deals, no doubt. They're, they're after a different kind of thing. And this is, this, in a sense, this synthesizes everything we've been saying so far. And what are the uh, economic consequences of that? I mean, especially on a microeconomic level. Uh, for example, its consequences in usury, for example. Well, usury, yeah. Uh, it, it's, if you're rich, and, and the idea of the rich, the, 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 the rentier, the rentier doesn't want his capital back. The rentier who possesses, this is how banks, they all start with a hoard of, of precious metals. And the idea is that they don't want, and, and they want to create, uh, they want to create a basis of, of a clientele to which they lend the money with a fractional reserve. In other words, they only have, in the coffers, they only have a, a very small percentage of the money that they handle. But, you know, it's an art to manage that. But the rentier doesn't want his capital back. The rentier wants to give you that sum and extract a free income from the system for life. This is what an annuity is. This is what a perpetuity is. This is what this is the whole system of coupon clipping is. And that's what it is. So at the micro level, the injustice is, resides in precisely in this. This is where it all begins. This is the alpha of the of the economic injustice and of the economic dynamics in, in general, what else does it mean uh, at the micro level? It means that money is injected into the economy in the form of a loan. So whoever possesses the money decides and just conducts the dance, conducts the orchestra, and it starts there. That's the number one institutional step. So what happens? The banking system lends the productive system a sum and wants to be repaid that sum with an interest at the end of the year. So what is the productive system going to do? This is what Gazelle calls a rent generating process. They say, well, I got to pay 10% back to you. So I am going to have, in order to break even, to have a return on my capital that's at least, that's at least 10, if not more, let's say 20% or so. And so they're going to go out there and they're going to go price their merchandise in such a way that they're going to make 20%, in such a way that the 20 they make, 10 they keep, and 10 they pay to the banker. And who's going to pay for all that? We are. Those who are not involved into those who are at the very end of this channel because because this is how it is. And how is the and, and, and under the pressure of money lent at usury in this way, what is going the productive system going to do? It's going to arrange production in such a way as to keep its prices as high as possible according to what the market may bear. This is why there's no such thing as perfect competition and all that nonsense they teach you in microeconomics class. All the system of production are, olig- are oligopolies. 
that basically districts where all producers know each other and they all agree on what kind of markup they're going to have on their merchandise. They're going to compete on other things. They're going to compete on uh, promotion or their advertising, but the prices are pretty much standard and they're not competitive at all. The markups are enormous. Why are they enormous? Because behind it is the overhead they have to pay to the bankers. And so what they're gonna do, they're gonna keep their prices high. And how do they keep their prices high? By keeping, by never producing at, at capacity. It, this is what Thorsten Devon calls sabotage. They're gonna keep production very restricted. It seems that we can produce, that we're producing a lot, but we're not. If the machines had a free run, we would be overwhelmed. And this, this goes to the very bottom of the, all these deep political sociological problems of what society could be. And this was the dream of the old Victorian uh, dissidents, that the machine that solved our problems, we have reached utopia. But because of the oligarchic and barbarous mentality which impinges and encroaches on it, we cannot because there has to be somebody on top of the game. So this is how it works. And so, and so what do the producers do? They keep prices up, restrict production, and, and they're going to cut all those costs that are, you know, they can be cut most easily, not affecting any kind of capital costs, which are those most important to them because they allow them to pay the overhead, which was originally due to the banking system, which kept this whole thing in motion and started it. And so to finish, they are going, the first thing they always attack and the first thing that they're always going to, uh, they're always going to keep as less remunerated as possible is is cheap is labor so this is the foundation this is the foundation not the marxian one this this these you know really smoky notions of plus value nonsense this is not how it works the way it works is that everything is managed as if it were a pawn shop you go to the it starts in the rooms of the banking offices they look at you they size you up they sniff they say okay we'll, we'll bet on you we're gonna give you this, and depending how reliable or unreliable you are, we're gonna add a premium to the interest rate that we're gonna charge you. Is that what Gazelle calls basic interest? I'm not quite sure about that. It is basic interest, isn't it? Yes, it is, it is. There's ba- basic interest if you are 100% reliable, if you are, uh, you know, prime rate, you get prime rate if you are the best, you have the best name out there. If you're still unknown and there, and there are some, some, some doubts as to your profitability, you're gonna get basic plus uh, insurance premium. And you're gonna, if basic is say, traditional has been 4%, you're gonna be four plus something. Let's say you get out of, you know, you get out of that office with a 7.5 interest, which is still huge. And, and then you go out in the world and you got to produce. Well, guess what, you know, you are not gonna produce, uh, first of all, assume you'll be able to get your name out there and people are gonna come to you and so on and so forth. You're not gonna produce a tremendous amount because if you you produce a a tremendous amount, you're not gonna be able to keep your prices high. Prices, you're gonna be able to have big volume sales and that that requires, you know, a big sales at high prices so that you can cover overhead, namely the banker, and feed yourself. And so it's obvious that in this, you know, in this game of a hammer and anvil, the one who's in between those two things is, is, is your labor force. Now that explains, that explains the exploitation. Not, in my view, nothing else does as, as clearly as the gazillion view. So we've got a basically inflationary environment, but you point out that it's conditioned by deflationary pressures. Exactly. Both of them, both of them are constantly at work together because the mechanics, the mathematical mechanics of the of, of money lent at interest uh, make it grow exponentially. 
But, but on the other hand, there's the problem that somebody's got to buy the money, is by the merchandise. And if the public doesn't have enough money to buy what it's supposed to buy to keep the whole system going, and a lot of it is put out of work because not all of them can be employed because the system cannot be run at capacity, the system find productive system finds itself constantly enmeshed in these, you know, contrasting push and pull of deflation and inflation at the same time constantly, depending on if it's on a boom or not, but those two forces are always, you know, there to 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 guide it and well, guide it, to to push it and jostle it one way or another. So the remedy is what Gazelle called free money, which is pretty much a way of linking up goods with each other. Well, Gazelle, Gazelle took a view, for all his anarchism, Gazelle took a view that was in the end somewhat very statelist because he wanted to have a central bank. And the only difference was that eventually he wanted to have, his big innovation was to uh, put out there this money with an expiration date. There's two ways of doing it. Either you just have a bill with an expiration date or the more laborious Gazellian way of getting these bills and affixing little stamps on them. And and they would circulate, and you would see how much life would be left on them. And if in in you know if it's like worth a hundred and it has nominal value a hundred, and it's been stamped up to a certain point, and it only has like uh, or it hasn't been stamped, and they give it to you, you can buy it at discount. Anyway, it has to signal the fact that these bills uh, are telling that they have a life, and, and and that you can exchange them so long as they're been as they're being kept alive by the stamping, which respect which respects the life of these, um, of, which re- which reflects the life of the good it exchanges. This is negative interest. In other words, every every day your bill technically loses value. That's in the end. Then you understand what it means. But when you when you hear it in the in the present context, it's it's incomprehensible. But when you when you know the story of Gazelle, says you know this is uh, and so what I I've read all this and I said well what should we do? Well we should do this, which we should organize ourselves in regional districts, and we should re and we should re encourage people to produce domestically. We should we encourage people to become artisans again, and all of this is done by recreating the cycles ourselves on a very communal level. You start small with a communal mint, a communal bank, which issues these notes regionally. You start small and then you federate slowly. And the way you do it would simply have two accounts. You don't even have the bills anymore because we agree. We need to have the, the least amount of physical properties. And so it, just have an ATM card and and you have a check, which is linked to a checking account and say to your checking account, you have a balance and every day it loses a little bit of value. And you can say that it has an annual average depreciation rate of 10%. You know, say you can have an office, a statistical office will actually will tell you what it is by measuring the rates of variations of everything. But let's assume it's like 10, Gazelle would say between six and 12% a year, which means that every day it loses, you know, like a, per, a, a percentage of that. It's like 10 divided by 365 days. And you just swipe it and, and buy stuff with it. You keep just enough of, uh, you know, you calculate how much you need for your daily expenses and whatever you don't need, you put into your savings account. Which and what does what does that mean? Putting money into the savings account. It means you give your money. It gives you you give the titles to wealth, which you do not use immediately, to the bank, which is going to redirect those goods and give them to somebody else, say to build a house or an investment good. And how does it do this? It freezes that that money is frozen and it's guaranteed to be remunerated at zero percent. And you say, well, zero percent. That's a fraud. I mean, I'm not getting anything out of it. And Gazelle would say to you, not at all. The bank is fighting depreciation in your stead. 
Because if it were up to you, you'd have these goods that would die on your shelves. Instead, it's guaranteeing you that it's going to take them because basically you could, you could say that that's food on the shelves. It's going to give that food that you're not eating to somebody else, say to construction workers, to build a house. And a year from now, that you know, I can guarantee that that money, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to congeal it for you and you'll be able to spend it on your house after, say, 10 years of construction. Every, and, and to me, this makes perfect sense. So you have negative interest on your day-to-day acquisitions because that's money you're spending. It's money that's dying every day a little bit, so you better spend it. You cannot hoard it. But, you know, the notion of saving, because, you know, people don't understand what saving is. Well, it's savings, it's like, it's money that I put under the mattress. No, not at all. Savings is deferred consumption. It's goods that you cannot eat today. But you are telling that you're, you're letting the bank, which is an, an important entrepreneurial node. So again, banks are important, but it's the way they manage it, which is key. You're telling the bank, you bank are going to find me according to a foundation or however you want to orient yourself. Find me the entrepreneur who needs the money now at 0% to do whatever they want and you guarantee that that money is protected for me when I want to spend it. And this is the kind of reform that I would like to see. Um, Let me see if I can formulate this correctly. That in the same way that the freeness, uh, the free nature of money in the sense of having uh, no interest charged um, for obtaining it, the free coining of it, the way that the free coining of this money is counterinflationary, the syst- the investment um, part of the system, the negative interest rate is the counter deflationary part of the gazellian system. Well, but there's yeah, with a system like this, there is no longer inflation because you know the, the inflation, the, and then you have to explain what inflation is because then we have to think say Vi- what was Weimar inflation? Well, that, that's a different story, but it's com- it's somewhat complex. And I mean, I've explained all that too in another book. But the thing is, as I was saying before, if you put if you put money in and you expect to be paid interest, and nobody knows where to get the extra money, if, if, if it can only come from the one who makes the money, that is the banker, this system is going to constantly generate more and more numerical values. And this is how you know this is how we look at how much you know you you could buy with a dollar now vis-a-vis 150 years ago, and it's like you know with a box 150 years ago you could buy I don't know like three ships, and these days with a dollar you don't buy you know, like in half a can half a candy right. In, in a gazillion system, when money is 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 synchronized with the goods, it's it's over. Not only that. You know, you have, of course, you have to manage it. You need an office who, who sees how, how prices fluctuate and according and accordingly, you know, manages the, the supply of money. But the, the key thing is that we are here to synchronize, to make the money reflect the goods. And not only that, we're, we're here, it, the money would be here to unleash a massive productive uh, a flurry because right now nobody's producing very much because if the bank decided there shouldn't be any money in the economy, there's nothing you could do. But what if all of a sudden the hoarding process were stopped? There would be production of plenty everywhere. And this itself would say gazelle in the initial phase would drive down the interest that exists in our system. Why is that? Because, because you know, the profitability on capital would go down to zero. Which means that there are so many, there would be, you know, uh, there are, there's so much of everything that we know we no longer would compute in terms of profitable. You know, it's like my business is profitable because there's only me here. So I have a monopolistic rent, which allows me to charge 
huge prices. If they and if I'm like I don't know if I am the only florist in town, I am I am like super rich. If like there's many of us now, you know our, our margins go down. But with a system with a system of free money, we could have. 1600 florists in in this in in this minimum 600 floors probably too many but we can have 20 no problem because everybody would be able to buy flowers it's it's a completely it's a completely revolutionary way of thinking of the potential that could be unleashed through this and so and so there could still be prosperity but 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 no longer we'd be no longer thinking of percentage okay well i can do 10% why do people think in percentages and profitabilities because everything is anchored to the initial loan that has the basic interest in it 4% for the best names plus risk one last question why haven't gazelle's ideas been taken up in the way that they might have been um um, of the engagement of economists that you've been describing recently put to one side. Keynes, for example, um, both ser- heavily engaged with but also attempted to discredit Gazelle. And you've written a brilliant, very brilliant essay called On the Subtle Art of Innuendo about that. Thank you. So what happened there? You know, yeah, Keynes, no, Keynes understood, I mean, <laughs> Keynes was not stupid. Uh, the opposite is true. He understood. He, he, he saw something valuable when he saw it. And so he said he um, he liked the theory of interest, you know, all the things that, where the interest comes from, but rejected, uh, what is it? I think he rejected the idea of having perishable money, saying it was not going to work. Um, without discussing whether Keynes, I think think Keynes was wrong, it did work. And we have, you know, of course, the gazillions will tell you all, they will cite their, you know, their their, their legendary, they have two or three episodes where these things, basically two, were implemented. Uh, One in in, in Austria during the Great Depression and another one in Bavaria. And um, they're very important cases. They're very limited, but very important. One was a case, I forget which one, if the Austin, the Bavarian one, was a city that lived off its mine, a coal mine or something. And, and so it's very important. So it was directly related to the earth, which is a key component uh, to understand if you want to relaunch the welfare of community, it has to start with, 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 with the land, with the food. To launch the cycle, and it's it's not a, for me. It's not an accident that it works so well in this country that depended exclusively on its mine, and with the depression, I mean, the money, the, the money, the money just disappeared. It, it dried it dried up, and and and, and the whole place went uh, belly up. And um, so and, and so the whole the, the whole the whole the whole city was paralyzed. And so I think the mayor who had read Gazelle thought, you know, <laughs> let me try. And they issued municipally these bills, and uh, the, the the municipal employees accepted and being paid part of their salaries in them, if not completely. And because the city was somehow self-sufficient to a large extent, its mine was driving what's driving the city. And then they had uh, product, you know, they're producing appendices of of artisans and 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 food producers, so to speak. And in a matter of months, as the story goes, but it hasn't been challenged. I mean, the, the records are there. The whole place was so successfully fixed up that they even had money to pave the streets and fix the, uh, the, the, the the lights. And then I don't know if this was the same story or another one, but these two cities were managed just overnight with uh, with with uh, regionally uh, just communally issued money, um, salvaged themselves. And as it generally happens, the money started to circulate. Right, <laughs> the, the anti-hoard clause is 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 vital. 
and and it and it, it exceeded the radius of the city, and and through 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 commercial exchange, it reached other cities. Not only that, it actually like like a salmon, it went up to the to the origin, and it re, and it, it reflowed through the. It was a reflux all the way back up at the to the Austrian Central Bank, which found it into its compensation clearing rooms. Looked at it and said, "What the hell is this?" And in no time, they had a court order saying that this was, you know, counterfeiting, and the whole system was sunk at once. It was funny because when I I I, I tried to lobby my case at the, with some high personalities at the Vatican, hoping that they would be understanding. And I showed, remember, I showed my project to a Monsignor up there, who, you know, those people they're very sharp and they understand all sorts of things. And he just gave it a, a quick look and understood immediately what it was. He says, "This is genius." And he says, the first thing, however, he says, the first, he says it's never going to work in Rome, but that's another story. And then he says, meaning the Vatican, and then he says, first you need, though, and he looked at me with these really, uh, uh, with, with this really sad and protective and, and, and paternal look. And he said, uh, get yourself a good team of lawyers <laughs> to, uh, to make it, which, you know, this is the first thing the system wants, to, these bills are going to flow back into the uh, into the clearing unions and the so-called compensation buffer rooms of exchange, as they do when they exceed the radius, which is a sign of health when the bill goes beyond the city. Right? It's it's the sign that the city is asking other cities to federate with it in its exchange. In its exchange, I have no doubt. We, those of us who have read this know that this will work, but the system will resist. And the first thing it's going to do, it's just going to say, "Well, you know, you are you're forging you're forging the currency." So when we get to it, if we get to it, God willing, this is something we have to be prepared for. The mining town that Guido Preparata mentioned as having made a success of Gazellian economics was the Bavarian town, Schwanenkirchen. As mentioned before, Guido Preparata's essay on the history of the dollar as the world's reserve currency, the political economy of hypermodernity, is available in New Directions for Catholic Social and Political Research, published last year by Palgrave Macmillan. And his essays about Gazellian economics are all available for free on his personal website, guidopreparata.com, which is spelled G-U-I-D-O. P-R-E-P-A-R-A-T-A dot com. I've seen it referred to correctly as a thing of beauty. It's also a terrific educational resource and well worth a visit. Hope you can join me next week when I'll be talking to Emma Blake Corrigan about physical literacy for children. Till then, bye. <laughs>